Good morning, church. How in the world are you? And how are you with all that is going on in the world in our current context in the shadow of July 4th weekend? In this atmosphere, I believe that each of us is aware of the need to grow in wisdom and then to apply that wisdom. So, Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the words of your wisdom be acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Teach your children a song written by Gordon Cosby, uh, rather uh, Graham Nash, not Gordon Cosby, and performed by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in 1970, spells out the need for wisdom. You, who are on the road, must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself, because the past is just a goodbye. I don't know much about these four singers, their background, their faith, their origin, their values, or their favorite ice cream flavor, but their song is one that can come right out of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And their song and our Bible text asks us, by which code do we live by? For we are surely saying goodbye to the past as we knew it. Our texts are both samples of wisdom literature, beginning with Matthew 11 and then Proverbs 9, in our quest for a litmus test for wisdom. A group of children get together to make up games. And these make up games and scenarios are what children do best. They often mimic adult life more than we would like to admit sometimes. So one child emerges as the initiator and begins to explain how the game is played. Some of them are eager to listen, ready to play along. Others refuse to listen to the idea of this new game, and they choose not to play because they want to play a different game. And thus it is on the playground with children and on the playground of wisdom. In verse 16 of Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of children in the marketplace, or maybe a place like Musser Park. They invite others to play a pretend wedding game. And then they come up with a pretend funeral game. And when other children refuse to play along, they sing these words. We played the flute for you, but you did not sing or dance. We wailed with those who are mourning, but you did not mourn with us. Jesus tells this parable to describe the response of religious people to the ministry of the now incarcerated John the Baptist and of himself. 
And while it's been said that faith sees the same events in history that everyone sees, faith sees them in quite a different light. So in Matthew 11, the religious leaders of the day see a deluded desert fanatic in John the Baptist. Jesus sees a prophet from God. The scribes and Pharisees see in Jesus a man who likes to party with people attracted to his ministry, but they miss seeing a Messiah offering an understanding of God's ways. And so now the application of the parable becomes more clear. Like the children in the parable, the generation of John and Jesus, people of faith, refuse to play along. They reject God's wisdom because they listen to a different code. And Jesus says, Sodom and Gomorrah, two villages synonymous with evil, are more likely to listen and repent than they will be. On the other hand, in verses 25 to 30, Matthew describes the disciples of Jesus as the infants in verse 25, who are receptive to learn. They understand what the wise scribes and Pharisees fail to perceive. And they, in effect, answered John the Baptist's question in chapter 11, verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? We too must ask that question. And Jesus' reply to the skeptics is this, Let anyone with ears listen. For listening is the first step toward passing the litmus test of wisdom. Today, our current environment has produced a test of wisdom in the midst of many voices of politics, of justice and injustice, of responding to COVID-19, of white privilege and white power, and Black Lives Matter. But Jesus' implication in the parable is that it's not enough to have ears. It's what we do with our ability to listen that counts. And like a parent saying to a child, I want you to listen. And we know what that parent really means is, they want their children to obey. And Jesus means the same thing when he says, let anyone with ears listen. But who is wisdom? And what is she saying to us today? In Proverbs 9, a prominent voice of wisdom literature, we find two women offering wisdom. Verses 1 through 6, we find wisdom as woman invites the simple of humanity those inexperienced or uneducated, and those who lack judgment. She invites them to her home for a feast. Not just hors d'oeuvres, but a full meal, meat and wine. It's a rich banquet of learning for those who accept the invitation. And she sends her maidens in search of anyone who might benefit from her banquet. In contrast, at the end of chapter 9 of, of Proverbs is another code of wisdom from a woman called Folly. She does the same as the woman of wisdom in verses 1 through 6, but note the difference. She sits at her door looking down 
on the street and invites those who by chance just happen to pass by. There's no intentionality in her invitation. And notice what she offers to those who lack judgment. She offers stolen water and bread eaten in secret, both symbols of the way of death and deception. And like Matthew 11, Proverbs lays out a choice, inviting us to join in the game of wisdom offered by God through Jesus. But you know, folks, sometimes it seems so hard to join in with God's wisdom. Sometimes I feel so inadequate. I have been on a journey for wisdom with race relations with black folks. Because I am racist, sometimes without knowing it, I realize my own need for wisdom. And it seems the more I learn, the more I realize I have to learn. I mean, how is it that I never heard of Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921? Starting in October of 2019, the law firm of Kibble, Grable, and Hess, along with Reverend Bailey of the Bethel American Methodist Episcopal Church in Lancaster, has hosted seminars and small groups entitled Abolishing Slaveries. And notice the active title of Abolishing. We've had a series of ongoing gatherings of nearly equal numbers of black and white folks to learn about American history of slavery and the long effort to overcome the ongoing systemic effects of slavery. Systemic racism is indeed my deep learning curve, or steep learning curve. So earlier this year in a sermon, I shared my practice of acknowledging black people whenever I pass them on the streets, acknowledging them as people, validating their existence. But through my experience with these seminars, I'm learning that having black folks' uh, relationships is just not enough. Nor can we depend only on black folks to help us understand systemic racism. We have work to do as whites, and yet many blacks do welcome conversation. But relationships and conversation must lead to systemic change. But what is it? What does it look like? Many years ago, Stanley Green, now retired uh, president of Mennonite Mission Network, told me that not a day goes by that he is not reminded that he is black. That's not my white experience. Recent interviews with black baseball players revealed they were told by their parents never to go to certain places. Black parents have this ongoing conversation with their children around 10 years old about what to do in public, where to go, not go, when to go, and when not to. Not just because they don't feel safe, but because they are not safe. It's not my experience. Black lives matter, not because other lives don't matter, but because there are too many people who demonstrate that black lives are not as important as white lives. Blacks, as a race in, in its entirety, not so much in every individual, but as a race, are still very way ahead in rates of incarceration, mortality rates, infant and adult, 
and so very far behind in health care, economic and educational opportunity, and some of our state governments continue to pass legislation that make it more difficult for people to vote. I have never been pulled over by police when driving my car, except those times when I deserved it. I can walk in my neighborhood at all times and never be questioned or interrogated by police or people in the neighborhood wondering what I'm doing. I have become somewhat aware of this white privilege, but on Saturday evening, I first named white privilege in the moment. Loretta and I wanted to have a better view of the brilliant sunset on Friday evening due to the Sahara Desert dust particles traveling through the states. And we were sitting there on the yard of a private business, a dental practice overlooking Fruitville Pike. No one was there, the parking lot was empty. But after a while I turned to Loretta and I said, you know, this is white privilege. Because I'm learning that blacks would not even think about sitting on an evening in somebody's private property, a business property no less, to watch a sunset. So maybe there's a little hope for me. LNP Sunday editorial comments from a black man, a young black man. My humanity is not assumed, he writes. He goes on to note that he has social media white friends, classmates, teammates, church people, co-workers who have made racist jokes on social media at his expense. And now with the protest movement are suddenly sharing about Black Lives Matter and justice and protesting the signs in Lancaster with all the right photos. No one apologized to him for those social posts. It's why he stayed home from the protests. And he says, don't post on social media without doing what is right in your community. My community needs to know you are in with us for the long haul, not just while hashtags are trending. He gets right at the litmus test of wisdom. So we need to ask ourselves, what game are we playing and by whose rules or code are we playing? For what and for whom are we invited to dance or mourn? The Uniform Sunday School lesson for this week notes that God's wisdom will be vindicated, proven true not by our words or by our ears, but by our willingness to join hands with God and our community and play along with Jesus' wisdom. But the question remains, are we ready to play the game? For this is the true litmus test to go beyond listening. And how we work at the systemic rates of racism is the important work. But honestly, this quest for wisdom can make me, make us weary in these times. Weary of false wisdom that is heavy and burdensome. And yet Matthew claims that Jesus' wisdom gives us rest rather than burdens us with guilt. 
And he writes in the ending of chapter 11, quoting Jesus, Come to me, all that you, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens in your quest for wisdom, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We close with Sirach chapter 4 verse 11, the rewards of wisdom. For wisdom comes from knowing God through Jesus. And I quote, Wisdom teaches her children and gives help to those who seek her. Whoever loves her loves life for all people. And those who seek her early, from early morning are filled with joy. May this give you joy and may you go in peace with wisdom. Amen.